From Alachua, Florida, I'm Amrita Kaley. I'm Krishna Kishore. And I'm Namamrita. Welcome to Nectar Talks, from the heart of New Raman Raithi, the largest Hare Krishna community in North America. And the home of thousands of Bhakti Yoga practitioners. In our ongoing series of live interviews, we explore a range of spiritual topics, introducing you to inspirational community members and guest speakers with diverse backgrounds and experience. Like bees searching for nectar, we seek to extract pearls of wisdom from how they live their lives and the spiritual lessons they can impart to us and our listeners. If you're seeking nectar, look no further. All right, let's get started. Hare Krishna, dear viewers, and welcome to the 26th episode of Nectar Talks. Thank you very, very much for joining us. We're so excited to be here today um, with Mother Mahavishnu Priya. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Prabhu. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> um, we, we've been talking back and forth, and... Um, this is just a very interesting and intriguing interview because um, as those of you who've done interviews with us know, we like to allow um, you, the person being interviewed, to sort of steer the conversation. Let us know things that you're passionate about talking about, messages that you, um, you know, have that have touched your heart in your journey in devotional service or in your life coming into Krishna consciousness and to impart that, that nectar on everyone who's listening. And so we cover things that are important um, to you. And um, if, if people who are interviewing aren't so sure what, uh, what to talk about, then we just ask all the questions. And obviously Krishna takes control and the conversations are always so beautiful and deep. Um, so when I approached you, Mother Mahavishnu Priya, um, you said, you know, uh, I talk a lot about my, my different service roles, particularly um, what I've been doing for 25 years plus in social work, for example. And it's really fascinating. Um, there's, I know that there's so much um, knowledge to be shared, especially, you know, even just from the spiritual perspective of, of what you've done um, through the years since joining Krishna consciousness, but you had a particular goal in mind, <laughs> yes, I which do. I think is going to be so um, refreshing and um, mystical. No, so I'm, I'm very That's excited. The That's the word. Yes. <laughs> so, so if, Go ahead, should so, I just a little bit? Sure, I'm just going to say, um, so um, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, Mother Mahavishnu Priya um, is from Oahu, Oahu, Hawaii, and um, she was born there, raised there, and she joined um, Krishna Consciousness there in 1991, um, and then moved to Florida, North Coastal Florida, um, with her husband and son at that time and came to us at New Roman Reiki in 2005. So maybe we'll get a little bit into that later, but I'm going to um, just hand you the reins and interject 
at certain points, forgive me if I interrupt you just to ask questions. So please uh, go I ahead. started actually working um, with Dear Govinda in 1996 to help set up the Child Protection Office here of North America. And um, I was, you know, coming back and forth at that time, but I didn't physically move here until 2005. But I was here. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, I'd like to uh, start with two remembrances of Srila Prabhupada and initiation. Um, so back in 1969, 100 years ago, Carlos Santana formed a group with John McLaughlin and others, and they called their group the Maha Vishnu Light Orchestra. And I can't remember a single song that, that they made popular. I don't know what their music is like. But that name, Maha Vishnu, stuck in my head for weeks. I thought it was the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard, and I couldn't get it off my mind. I just kept repeating it over and over, and often falling to sleep repeating this name. So fast forward to 1974, and I meet the devotees. I buy a Krishna book on the street. I read George Harrison's foreword to the book, and I am sold. I want to find out more about Krishna, and Srila Prabhupada's organization. I begin going to the temple often for their programs. I move into the Hawaii temple um, in April 1st, which I thought, made the, is this a cosmic joke? April 1st, I moved in in <laughs> 1995, and um, it's getting to be the end of October 1975, and I'm looking at initiation in a few days. So I bounce back and forth between, should I do this? Should I not do this? Is this the right thing for me? Is, it, or is this something that's gonna take me into crazy land? I just, my, I just needed some extra push. I knew it was the thing to do, but there was a lot of doubt. In, you know, is this right for me? So um, initiation day, well, I was praying to Krishna by saying, please give me an answer. Please show me a sign that this is the right thing for me to do. So initiation day arrives. I sit with the others who are getting initiated and I'm wishing that Krishna would have given me a clear signal that this is right for me. So I'm thinking like this, you know, at the ceremony and the temple president announces Bhaktin Karissa, Srila Prabhupada has given you the name Maha Vishnu Priya Dasi. I was blown away. There was my answer. Who else? Who else would have known how much I love that name or what it meant to me? Even though I had forgotten about it years ago, Krishna had not forgotten. So I like that little story. <laughs> And it's so incredible, too, because it's so vastly different from your given name, Carissa. Yeah, I thought I was getting a Krishna name. I was I was for sure. It's like Krishna Bhamini, Krishna Priya. You know, that's what I'm in. My husband saw my name uh, in the letter and uh, Shruti Kirti had shown it to him. And I was thinking, 
tell me, tell me. And he's like, no, no. And I said, well, just tell me the first letter. Tell me the first letter. And he says, M. I still didn't get it. M? My family Hawaiian name is, last name is M. I don't know. <laughs> but um, so the next little episode I want to talk about is that um, it, it's out one year out from initiation. And I was feeling that I didn't have a personal relationship with Srila Prabhupada, like so many others who were in the movement longer than I had been. I kept thinking, Srila Prabhupada doesn't know me. Well, on one level, he knows I'm his disciple, but he doesn't know who I am on a personal level. I was feeling down in the dumps and discouraged, but I had a friend who had a meeting with Srila Prabhupada when he was visiting Hawaii. And it was to discuss a project that she wanted to work on. Srila Prabhupada liked her idea and he was encouraging her, but he asked, who will help you with this? This is not something that can be done alone without the help of others. So my friend said, Mahavishnu Priya and her husband goes to Biharidas, they've offered to help me. And Srila Prabhupada sat back pointed his eyes up to the ceiling. <laughs> and finally he said, yes, these two work well together. They have been married in four previous lifetimes. And in their last lifetime, they were husband and wife mathematicians. I could hardly believe it when she told me this, but then I realized that Srila Prabhupada knows whatever Krishna wants him to know. So I felt very relieved that both Lord Krishna and Srila Prabhupada knew us. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's that. <laughs> I, I can't hear you. I lost your, I lost your sound. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I want to, I want to simmer in this for just a minute. How old were you at this time? Uh, 25, 26. And you had, how many years in Krishna consciousness were you? One year. I mean, I've been, oh. six months later, I got initiated. And then a one year from that. So a year and a half, I guess. What was that like to hear something so specific and so otherworldly? Um, that early on in your life and in your devotional life from Srila Prabhupada himself. It just it was mind-boggling. I just, I was so glad that he knew who we were. I was relieved. And uh, I just tried to, to just develop more faith in Srila Prabhupada. And that faith, you know, comes from being, being, uh, having gratitude and, and being uh, desiring to serve him and to worship his lotus feet. But the big thing that I wanted to talk about was growing up in Hawaii. What a marvelous heritage we have, both as a place and a people. We live in the most beautiful place on earth and enjoy a culture that is second to none. Our history is rich, yet for many, the reality is less than ideal and life is difficult. How can we overcome these challenges and differences together as we move into the future?
There is only one way, and it embodies everything we have talked about. It's summed up in one word, Aloha. We've been told it's a greeting, and we see the word everywhere, but what does it really mean? And how is it foundational to our future? Aloha. While some would say Aloha has a de definition of a greeting, it's more than just a greeting. It's a way of being, it's a way of life. You can break the word down into two parts, actually multiple parts, but in general, alo, to be in the presence of, to be in the face of, to join, to combine with, with the ha, the breath, the life, the spirit, the essence of one's being, anyone else around you. And so when you say aloha, aloha, you're saying to be in the presence of, to join with the spirit and the essence of the person who is across the table from you, with the place that you're in. It also speaks to the notion of connecting to the creative forces, however you define them, God, nature, the ah in Ijas, the heat energy, to Allah, to connect with that and to live in balance with that thing. It also touches on the concept of Pono, that again, that balance. Uh, it's something that talks about and speaks of giving and receiving, not giving and taking. And so if we don't find Aloha, oftentimes it's because we didn't bring it with us. It's a notion that the more you put in, the more you receive. Aloha is also about leaving people and places better than when you found them. It's about leaving people whole, leaving a place whole. Aloha is the connection of all things, a presence that is unspeakable, that you can't touch, you can't see, but it comes from the center of your being. And so as you acknowledge that everything has a life around you and it lives and breathes, it has ha, and that ha gives us the ability to interact and be a part of all of creation in all that we do. The Hawaiian culture was always very in tune with nature because they always lived close to, close to nature and to the earth and to the oceans. My grandfather would tell us that our, all of our ancestors navigated by the stars as expert watermen, and they originally, originally sailed from south of in India and settled in the Pacific region. So then many transmigrations from India began 5,000 years ago to the islands of the Pacific and they took place. First they settled in New Zealand, the first boats of people that came and they became known as the Maori people. In later sea voyages, they settled in Tahiti, then Samoa, the thousand islands and atolls of Micronesia, like Guam, Midway, Kwajalein, Pitcairn Island, and Saipan, Tonga, and Hawaii. So all of these people are known collectively as Polynesians. Fijians in the Pacific are not Polynesians because their ancestors came from Africa and not India. So they are known as Melanesians. The Hawaiians uh, sailed by celestial navigation and also had names for all the different kinds of winds. 26 different names of winds on the big island of Hawaii, 17 different winds on Oahu, 21 winds on Maui and so forth. Plus the many different types of winds as they sailed to the Pacific region from India, they knew them each by name. So Hawaii is composed of nine islands, causing Srila Prabhupada to name this region, which is the Hawaiian archipelago, Nunavut Dweep. 
So my mother was pure Hawaiian. My father was pure Italian. That's, um, she was a beautiful hula dancer and um, they met and that was it. <laughs> How did they but, meet? He was... Well, you know, I always see it as a Hollywood movie. I always see it as like Dorothy, uh, Dorothy, uh, one of those big Dorothy characters. <laughs> Dorothy, I know, I used to know her name anyway, but it, she's, um, it's, it's kind of like, um, and I can't even think of his name either, Tyrone Power meets Dorothy L'Amour. That's it. <laughs> you know, he's, my, my father was a naval officer and after the uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor, he was assigned to the, that, that area. And my mother was a hula dancer from 18 to 26. She traveled all over the United States with a group. And um, she's dancing in Waikiki and my father is there. That's how they met. And I'm going, Hollywood movie time. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we grew up in Hawaii with so much natural beauty surrounding us, swaying palms, coconut trees, mangoes, papayas, avocados, bananas, strawberry guava trees, um, lily koi, common yellow guavas, mountain apples, pineapples, carambola, the star fruit, so many varieties. So as children playing outside, we never had to run home to get a drink of water or to eat lunch because we drank from the abundant waterfalls and we mm. ate ripened fruit growing wild everywhere. It was a real tropical paradise back then. And there were beautifully colored birds, exotic looking birds, singing all types of sweet songs and making sounds. So to us as children, it was like heaven on earth. So I, I'm gonna talk about three three different plants because uh, Hawaiians are really into nature. Um, first one is the how tree and it's spelled H-A-U, pronounced how. And it's abundant all through the islands. The tree is covered with big yellow flowers in the early morning. At noon, it turns bright orange. And after four or 5 p.m. in the afternoon, it's deep red. So think about this. Um, one flower, one day, three different colors, and a beautiful scent, a beautiful scent. So mothers would tell their children under 10, when the how blossoms turn red, it's time to come home. <laughs> <laughs> so these, um, there's another plant, and it's called the Nampaka blossom. And it's found both at the ocean and at the top of the mountains. And the story that we were told and every child knew growing up was that two demigods met in an area between the ocean and the mountain. They were immediately attracted to each other and they fell deeply in love. But they realized they could never be together because he was the guardian and the protector of the mountaintops and she was the protectress of the shores and the beaches. So he, the male demigod, would send messages to her at the shore carried by various kinds of birds. She could listen and she could understand his meaning through the bird language. 
Then in return, she would throw messages into the wind, direct, aiming directly at him. And, he, and uh, the wind would carry these messages that found him, wrapped around him, and lingered, repeating itself in his ears and in his mind. <laughs> so the story goes that at some point in time, they were relieved of their duties in Hawaii, and they left behind the Nampaka plant both growing in the mountain and at the shore. The Nampaka plant has white uh, blossoms with four petals on just one side, and that's for the beaches. And the, the plant that grows up in the mountains has four petals on the left side. When you put these two half flowers together, they, be, they give off a beautiful scent. Individually, you cannot smell the scent, but when the two flowers are put together, this aromas just- You're kidding. So delightful, <laughs> emanates. So this flower is a constant reminder to all the islanders that there once was a beautiful love affair that existed between two demigods and that the plant they left behind is a constant reminder of their love. That's. That's two plants. I have a third one to go. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> okay. The night blooming cirrus, and it's a very large, it opens at night and it's nourished by the moonlight. And its beautiful scent can be smelled from two miles away. We always knew when it was the full moon night because the scent was so sweet and heavy in the air. I remember waking up in the middle of the night to a sweet flower scent and thinking, oh, it's just the full moon and the, and the night blooming cirrus is blessing us with her wonderful scent. So uh, Srila Prabhupada comes to Hawaii and he says, Hawaii was 50 years behind Kaliuga. So he also recognized that while we had forests and we had jungles, we had no predatory animals like tigers, lions, wolves, coyotes, and no snakes. We didn't even have mosquitoes until after the 1840s when the Chinese cargo junks arrived and began offloading crates on our ports. Oh. Crates were filled with cockroaches, rats, centipedes, geckos. Anyway, <laughs> I thought that was interesting that we didn't have mosquitoes until the 1840s. And in Hawaii, even in my time in Hawaii, mosquitoes were very polite. They, <laughs> stayed in the, they only stayed in the mountain. If they bit you, the bite was gone after an hour or so. Wow. <laughs> so um, Hawaii was a very special, special place, but... Um, did you want to say anything at this, this point? Well, I'm just thinking about how, you know, in terms of cosmology, in terms of worldview, yeah. you, you know, a lot of us who come into Krishna consciousness from sort of this Western, maybe Judeo-Christian background, this yeah. is all, for me, it was so welcomed. I was searching for something like this and it didn't take me long to feel total acceptance. However, it was foreign to me, at least in this life. Yes. yes. But, but tell me what it was like for you growing. I mean, 
well, you already kind of did just laying in your bed as a young child and saying, ah, it must be the full moon. And this, and the night blooming cirrus must be opening up to give us her blessings. I mean, (laughs) having that kind of awareness of the um, living nature that living entities are conscious beings, that there is spirituality all around us. And also that there are demigods present that are, um, managing the affairs around us yeah what is what is what was it like to then hear from Srila Prabhupada about um these these things in the Vedic context it was just life affirming everything that he said because it was so in tune with my family and what I grew up with and the experiences that we had uh so I want to say that um like Indian tribes in North America, the Hawaiians also had spirit animals that were actually their relatives in previous lives. So in Hawaiian, these spirit animals are called almakua. So there are many types of animal almakua. And our grandfather would always tell us that we never had to fear a shark because our almakua is the shark. They are our ancestors. He would say a shark might wink at you, but he will never harm you because he knows you as his family. So I remember my grandfather saying this first to his 10 children, which my mother was one of, when they were small. And then he repeated it to his 26 grandchildren, great-grandchildren. As the younger grandchildren arrived and learned to swim, he would repeat that the sharks are our family. Now, I never really believed it was true, but I always hoped it was true. Then in 1993, when my mother passed away, she wanted to be cremated and her desire was for that her ashes be taken to Ka'a'ava Beach, where my grandfather's beach house was, and where all nine sets of aunts and uncles and 26 cousins grew up together playing volleyball, hiking, swimming, playing music, dancing hula, and surfing. And anyone, every one of my family members are either musicians or hula dancers, and some are both. So my sister arranged for these elders, or we call them kupunas, wise people, to do the chanting in Hawaiian to officiate the service, the last ceremony for our mother. Then it was time for the four of us, my sister, my two brothers and myself, to go into the water with her ashes. We walked down the channel to the reef and we scattered the ashes there. While all of us were raised growing up Catholic and attending Catholic grammar schools, each of us found a different spiritual path as adults. One brother was Baha'i, my other brother was Jehovah's Witness, My sister was an ardent proponent of the ancient Hawaiian religion, and I, of course, was Hare Krishna. When we got to the reef, we stood in a circle holding hands, and each said their prayers aloud, one after the other. I chanted some verses from Bhagavad Gita. My sister chanted in Hawaiian, and the brothers said their prayers aloud in English. We poured her ashes into the center of the circle we had created, and looking down, we noticed we were being encircled by four two-foot-long baby sharks. They stayed a respectful distance away, but they wanted us to know that they were there 
to pay their respects to our mother. I could not believe how gentle, yet how real they were. When we looked up, we saw four more auspicious signs. The light mist falling before the sunshine was glittering like golden gems falling on earth. The moon and sun were in the sky together at the same time. The breezes carried sweet flower scents all around us. Normally when you're out in the ocean, you smell salt water, but we were smelling these sweet flower scents. And then four white doves uh, suddenly appeared. They encircled us overhead and as well, they flew off to the mountaintops. We watched their ascent and I accepted it all as blessings of the Lord upon my mother. So Hawaii was the place uh, where the demigods came for water sports was what Srila Prabhupada had said. But when he said that, I knew he, he understood what our Hawaiian culture was all about. He knew he was on sacred soil saying this was the place where the demigods came. And he knew perfectly what the lost souls of Nunavadweep needed. And he had the antidote. So we are related to the sharks. <laughs> that proves it. <laughs> I don't think my my camera was in view while you're telling that, but I I actually got full body goosebumps. Oh, you know, honey <laughs> ball. I'm telling you. <laughs> so I, you know, there I looked up this thing about demigods and. I have a list of, of things uh, that are true about them because a lot of us, we, we, we think, oh, they're not real. Or if they are real, there's no way we can contact them or we can't interact with them. And, um, so I was uh, looking up online at Vonipedia and I got a whole list of these things. Can I just read them? Of course, please, yeah. That all the demigods are living entities who have been appointed to their various posts as the masters of the moon, the earth, Venus, and so on, because of their great service and pious acts. All the demigods are servants who carry out the orders of the Supreme Lord. Because the demigods are materially conditioned souls, although they are situated in very exalted positions, their benedictions cannot be permanent. Permanent benediction is spiritual benediction since a spirit soul is eternal. Because the demigods themselves are temporary, their benedictions are also temporary. Mixed consciousness puts a conditioned soul in the position of managing the affairs of this creation. The demigods are entrusted leaders of the conditioned souls. It's not that Durga is all in all. There are many millions of Durgas, many millions of Shivas, because there are many millions of universes. So just like many millions of police force, similarly, there are many millions of these demigods, but the Supreme Lord is one. As a government officer is sometimes accepted as the entire government, although he is actually just a representative or a manager, so the demigods, having power of attorney over, uh, from Vishnu, act on his behalf, even though they are not as powerful as Vishnu. Demigods are highly exalted devotees of the Lord, 
who still have some tinge of material conditioning. Since the demigods are included in the gigantic form of the Lord, worship of the Lord, whether in his gigantic material conception or in his eternal transcendental form as Lord Sri Krishna, this also appeases the demigods. That's, that's who the demigods are. <laughs> so it should be very clear, right? <laughs> um, so I attended a, a Hawaiian school known as the Kamehameha Schools. And my grandfather was the first person in our family, Ohana, to attend Kamehameha. He was a member of the graduating class of 1915. So um, in 1893, um, our kingdom of Hawaii, our government was overthrown and our queen was put in prison on false charges. Um, so they built schools. They took over the kingdom of Hawaii treasury. They built schools, but they didn't allow native children to attend. So, you know, this was our government, this was our tax dollars, and then native children could not attend. Mm. They also um, banned speaking Hawaiian. They, they, it was like a playbook out of, uh, of genocide that everyone will be banned from speaking Hawaiian. So let, let's take their language away from them. And then they also took hula away from them because uh, this group of people that first came, uh, they couldn't tolerate dancing of any kind. Who was the first group of people that came? Calvinist missionaries from Boston. Okay. <laughs> I think they were, aren't they extremist Christians? I'm not sure. I'm just surprised by the Boston part. I mean, but yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so they're uh, the ones who came and they set up, um, they set up, did, they were Calvinist. Okay. Yes, so your Catholic, your, your Catholic background came from your father's family? Is that right? Yes. Okay. From the Italian side. Yes. Okay. My father was an altar boy till he was 21 years old. Wow. So I, I would tell my grandma that I loved the mass. I, I loved, I was part of the choir. I was singing. And then they changed the um, Latin mass to English. And it just lost all of its sacredness to me. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> now I'm drinking the wine. Taking the host. Anyway, uh, but fortunately for us in Hawaii, we had a benefactress, Princess Pawahipaki. And she owned 30% of all the crown lands in Hawaii. So Princess Pawahi had no children of her own. So in a sense, she adopted all the children of the Kingdom of Hawaii. And uh, she created three schools, a grammar school known as the Preparatory Academy, a high school for boys, and a separate high school for girls. The boys' school was a military school, and the girls' school was more like a finishing school. At Kamehameha, I discovered amongst my friends, there were many, many tales 
in their families of demigods who had married into their ohana. So I was fascinated by hearing these stories of these relatives who had superhuman abilities and powers. And I wondered about my own Hawaiian family's connection to the demigods. Well, I didn't have to wait long since the day arrived when our grandfather called for all his grandchildren between the ages of 12 and 17 to come for a walk with him on the beach. So there we were, there were about 12 of us in this age group and we wanted to hear what our grandpa had to say. Our grandfather told us he has three siblings, one younger sister and one set of twin brothers. One of the twins was an albino and in Hawaiian culture, an albino is very much revered and respected for he is considered a walker in two worlds. This physical world, which we see around us, as well as a separate dimension of reality, open only to him. Another aspect of Hawaiian culture is a process known as hanai. By the time a child is 10 years old, the parents are clear about what special interests or propensities their child has displayed, or a keen interest in areas such as artistry or warrior and warcraft, hula dancing, singing, woodcraft, so many things. So grandfather's sister, my great aunt, from a very early age was always dancing hula. So she was Hanai or given to another family member who specialized in hula. So a common practice of giving your child to a family member who has expertise in a specialized area means they now live 100% of their time with that family and as their Hanai child, which also means they take the same last name of their new family. Wow. <laughs> so my great aunt had problems with her eyes when she was a child and um, the family called for a healer to come and look at her. And he believed that her name was incorrectly given to her. And if the family changed her name, then her eyes would heal and get better. So the healer said her name should be Eo Lani. Eo is the name of the hawk in Hawaiian, and Lani just means heaven. So her name is essentially Heavenly Hawk. We all know what great eyesight hawks have. They can be a half mile up in the air and still see a small field mouse running across the grass. <laughs> Their eyesight is keen. So the family changed her name to Eo Lani, and her eyes improved. She no longer had eye problems. So this is a very subtle type of healing process that also allowed her to go more deeply into the spiritual arena within herself as well. So Iolani moved to Kauai where her aunt was deeply rooted in hula and she learned everything there was to know about sacred hula from this expert dancer and practitioner. So this is a good place for me to mention that when the first outrigger arrived in Hawaii thousands of years ago, they discovered that the islands were already inhabited by demigods. These demigods would play music and dance and hula is the Hawaiian version of what the Hawaiians witnessed the demigods doing. So hula is, a very, is very special as it was handed to the Hawaiians by the demigods. 
So my aunt followed all these sacred rites associated with hula, rising before the sun, spending long periods of time in prayer and meditation, eating only certain foods to increase her mana, which is shakti in Sanskrit. She became very inward and she could connect to things of the natural world. For example, there was to be a big parade where she lived and the weatherman mentioned that it would rain. So everyone asked my aunt, should we cancel the parade for today? And she closes her eyes and says, no, no need to cancel. If the parade ends by 3 p.m., because that is when the rain will start. And she was accurate to the minute when the rain began falling exactly at 3 p.m. <laughs> so this woman was a beautiful spiritual hula dancer who never married, never had children in order to keep herself pure for her devotion to sacred hula. However, when she performed in public, it was like she would go into a trance and her dance movements became mesmerizing to everyone watching. So I remember this one time when I was 13 years old, our whole family was celebrating another relative's birthday. We all gathered at this big banquet hall in downtown Honolulu with uh, two sets of glass double doors on the same wall side by side. And um, the doors were all open when this young man carrying his big boom box waited at the bus stop for his bus. My auntie could hear this old Hawaiian melody wafting into the banquet hall. And she immediately stepped onto the stage and began dancing hula. The entire room got quiet. All 150 eyes, sets of eyes were focused on her. She finished dancing and a crowd gathered around her, asking all kinds of questions from guests that did not know her. One woman said, I've seen you dance before. And this time also, you took me to a place in time that I've never been. Another woman said, when you danced, you took my breath away. I've never seen movements like this before. And um, another one said, your hula was so enchanting. How do you do that? And my auntie Iolani politely replied, I don't know. I wasn't here. <laughs> I wasn't here. <laughs> Whoa. So she became quite famous in the islands as the embodiment of sacred hula. And they erected a statue to her in Waikiki, which didn't impress her in the least because this woman had no false ego. Wow. She was quoted as saying, just another toilet for the birds to decorate with excrement. <laughs> Just another toilet for the birds. That was her statue. <laughs> she sounds like such a yogi. She is. She's, if she, she, you'll see pictures of her. Madhurya Leela will put them there. So um, this next story about her that I love is one that I had that is documented and it was published in the San Francisco Examiner. I read about it rather than hearing about it from my family. I think I was in college. Um, the Queen of Tonga was invited by the president, Jimmy Carter, to come to the wa Washington DC. She would have a one day stopover in Hawaii, meet the FBI in Hawaii 
and they would accompany her on to um, meeting the president. So the week before the queen was to travel, she received a Hawaiian consulate phone call asking her what she would like to see or do while she was in Hawaii. So they could arrange that for her. And the queen responded, oh, I would like to meet the most famous hula dancer in your islands. Would that be possible? So on the day, the queen and the FBI were flown to the big island of Hawaii to meet with my auntie up at Volcano. So my auntie is waiting at Volcano when the queen's vehicle drives up and it's extremely windy. The queen meets my aunt, but she's afraid to get out of the car because of this ferocious wind. This is the kind of wind that can blow you down, having all your clothes flying behind you. So Auntie Eo says to the queen, you stay right here, I'll be right back. And Auntie Iolani walks all the way to the rim of the volcano and begins chanting loudly in Hawaiian like she's competing with the wind. Then she starts dancing hula. She offers her final prayers before walking back to the car and the winds die down. The queen gets out of the vehicle and my aunt is showing her all around the area, all the unique foliage, um, rock formations. She's explaining the history, the history and the tales of this volcano and talking about our volcano goddess, Madame Pele. So these two, my aunt and the Queen of Tonga, they become immediate, fr immediate friends and they enjoy each other's company immensely. Now the FBI approaches <laughs> and says to the Queen of Tonga, it's time to leave. And she says, no, I wanna stay with her. And the FBI says, we are your bodyguards and we are ordered to get you to the Honolulu airport on time. And the classic statement of the queen occurs. She says, pointing to my auntie, she can stop the wind. How can you protect me? <laughs> she can stop the wind. What you got? <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> can stop the wind. She knows about the rain. She knows all these things about nature. <laughs> she brought a, an owl back to life. She found him on the side of the road. And he, he uh, moved into her house and lived with her <laughs> until he died. But he, he she would always say, you're my protector. And people would say, is that a real owl? And she'd go, yeah, he's my protector. <laughs> wow. I, I wish that I, I didn't, I don't know anything about sacred hula, you know, and I, I'm sure m most of us don't, you know, but, um, so is it, is it a, is it a dance in, to tell me about hula in terms of its symbolism or in terms of its, uh, the conversation that's happening between the body, the person and uh, the, the, the atmosphere. On one level, it's really hard to understand because Hawaiian is written, there's only, the Calvinists only heard 12 letters. And so they wrote the alphabet. You know, the Hawaiians didn't have an alphabet. 
And um, when you're trying to re when you're trying to express yourself with just 12 letters, <laughs> it gets a little difficult. But um, so the Hawaiians wrote in such a way that um, it, it's called kaona. Kaona. It they could write things that other Hawaiians could understand, but nobody else could. And uh, um, they would talk about the place in these in the hula, the sacred these sacred places, and what sacred things are found there, and uh, what the meaning of this kind of gesture is. And um, the swaying palms are um, clean, clearing the energy around the ether of the hula. It just so many different things. It's, it's really quite complex. Amazing. But um, I, I do, I do have a question for you, but I want to wait until if you, if you're in a train of thought and you want to continue sharing, I can ask it later. Okay. Um, I want to continue with this. Uh, there's just a certainly, yeah, of course. <laughs> so in addition to this auntie with her unusual abilities on my grand father's side. Um, on my grandmother's side, there were five females, but three of them were very special. They would walk from village to village on the big island of Hawaii, and they would sit under a banyan tree or a kamani tree. And when I was small, maybe seven or eight, I asked one of these aunts, why a kamani tree? And she told me, because anyone who sits for five minutes under a kamani will feel the soothing embrace of the tree and the loving support that it sends out to others who can sit still. And she pointed to me, sit still. I guess mm. I couldn't sit still at that time. So um, people, <laughs> people who had problems would gather to receive Hawaiian healing known as Ho'oponopono. And Ho'oponopono means just to make right, to put back in balance. To, mm. It also stands for justice. Um, it's a process of unburdening yourself from wounds that are emotional, sometimes physical or mental. And the process begins with complete honesty. That is the first step. Owning up to your responsibility for the part that you played in causing stress, grief, heartache, difficulties, or anguish to someone else. So both parties have to be present to hear each other fully explain from their understanding and admit to what they did or they didn't do or they should have done. So my three aunts were visionaries. They could see past, present, and future. One aunt could see the situation of the past clearly as each person spoke about their involvement in what happened. So she's, she's got this vision and she's seeing what really happened while she's listening to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. The other aunt could see the situation as it exists currently, such as which one is more serious or honest, which one is holding something back. And then the third aunt could see the future of how these things play out after this process ends. They all three could see, but they just, 
in in this uh, situation, this healing process, they each took a different, you know, sometimes they, the person who could see the present didn't always see the present, you know, they'd interchange. But these three ladies became very well known on the big island and they were respected for their healing abilities by bringing forth gratitude in others. That was the ultimate goal, gratitude. For the truth telling experience, opening their hearts up and many other lessons that they learned through this process. Sometimes the aunts would say, we will have to come back another time for you too, because neither of you are ready to be fully honest in this process at this time. So they were very cognizant of everything, all the elements, using all their tools or abilities to bring about healing and change for the better. So um, I was I was going to add something to this that um, it's gone now. I don't know, but anyway, <laughs> he, um, healers they always start on the most subtle level. Oh yeah, what I was going to say is that you uh, say you and I have a disagreement but we don't like being upset with each other. So we might come to this Ho'oponopono session and you could bring anybody you wanted with you and I can bring my family. So it's a bunch of people. Mm. <laughs> it's really just that, so everyone gets informed at the same time and everyone can see, oh, this is mm. how she believed it happened and this is how he believed it happened. And that kind of thing. It sounds like um, it's really, really bringing together community and family, and right that we're all we're all trying to we're all trying to essentially heal together to grow together. Yes. So everyone's involved in the process. Yeah, that's a really good. That's, that's a really. Yeah, it's good. really cool, and you don't have to like hear it through the grapevine. Like yeah. what 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 was spoken about in the uh, mediation. <laughs> <laughs> so um my grandfather's side had the twin brothers and auntie eolani um, the albino brother could not tolerate the sun's blinding light so every morning before sunrise he walked to the ocean's edge he entered the water and fishermen who were also present there noticed only one white dorsal fin going through the bay water to the ocean. So this uncle had the ability to shape shift from one human form to another shark form, always a white shark. And the area where my grandfather's family lived was known as Keala Kekua Bay. So the neighbors all began to talk quietly about this albino shark man. But soon they came to realize that he was actually a gift to them because daily he would drive into the bay schools of fish for the fishermen and their families. And an interesting thing that Hawaiians used to do is that they would take young fish, they would put them in uh, breeding ponds and when the fish were big enough, they would put them back in the ocean. So they were Whatever they took out of the ocean, they bred new ones and they put that back. There was, it was all very ecologically minded, but 
I, they didn't think of it that way. Just me in this time. And frame. <laughs> so um, this was what my grandfather wanted to tell us when he asked us to walk on the beach with him. He talked about his two brothers and the shapeshifter brother, especially. I remember my cousins afterwards saying things like, boy, I can't get my mind around that. Mm. And another cousin would say, my uncle is a shark? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> and another cousin said, I don't even know how to begin to think about all of this. And my eldest uh, girl cousin said, I think it's best that we know this, but we never speak about it. These were some initial reactions but over time, we all accepted this was just the way things were. So my albino uncle would go into the bay and return from the bay as the sun was setting daily. Then one day he went into the water and was never seen again. His brother was very much concerned about him and what might have happened to him. They were twins. They had this you know, communication form that, you know, no other two people can experience outside of twins. So this brother went into a meditative state. He was in isolation for 10 to 15 days without food. He kept telling his father, I will find him and I will return him back home. Then the brother climbs into a very tall eucalyptus tree. He sits on the top branch for about an hour or more and suddenly, when the moment is right, many people see a giant golden Hawaiian hawk fly off the tree. So this brother had these powerful abilities too, but no one else knew it, not even his parents, until that day of his first flight that we know of. Oh my God. <laughs> so the family is saddened that only one child remains at home, and that was my grandfather, but he didn't stay for very long because he was going to Kamehameha School where he would board. The twins are gone. Auntie Iolani was a Hanai to a relative's family in Kauai. Um, these were different days, difficult days for those who remained. But about mm -hmm. one year later, the hawk uncle returns as a human being, and he, re and he reports that his albino brother now lives in the waters off the Pacific Northwest. He has a family of sharks, a wife and shark children. His shark wife is also a Native American Indian who can shape shift as well. Oh, Krishna. <laughs> he was a gray shark. <laughs> so my shark uncle tells my hawk uncle <laughs> that we will come when the children are fit enough and have the stamina enough for this arduous journey back to Hawaii. So this is my phenomenal Hawaiian family story of living with demigods. And I am very, very glad to be connected to. When I first started reading Krishna book and could hear what Krishna, his brother, and friends could do at various times in various situations, I was not phased at all. I fully, I, I, I believed it all entirely. I fully recognized the truth of mystical worlds.
They do exist. They're there. And we can experience them in Krishna consciousness. Thank you so much for sharing this. <laughs> this, is, this is just really, really extraordinary. Um, I, I have, I have some question now we could from here, you know, I could spend hours diving with you into sort of the, the juicy anthropological examination of religion and spirituality and, um, and all this. But I also have some, um, some questions that sort of marry into your practical life mm. with all of this being said. So first of all, um, let's start with this one. You're sharing about family members who seem to have a very, very, they have extraordinary abilities and they're also very empowered personalities for good like healers. Yeah. Right. And like your, um, your, your aunt, who is the sacred hula dancer. So I'm wondering if what the internal experience has been like for you, did you have a feeling growing up that, or did your parents have a feeling growing up that you had a propensity and did you ever struggle? Like, what is my identity? What is my um, purpose? What is my service is really in Krishna consciousness, sort of like that kind of big question mark that some of us have is like, what am I meant to do for Krishna in this life? Did you, have you experienced that? And, and if so, how has that developed for you? Um, when I was very small, uh, I mean, two or three, maybe three, I could see auras. And I used to call them colors. And um, my mother was very afraid to send me to school because she thought for sure they're going to think she's crazy and that their little daughter is crazy too. Um, but she didn't have to worry because once you get to school, you just get brainwashed and you're, mm -hmm. you're learning a whole new way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And so the colors went away. But I, I, I remember... Um, being with an aunt and she met a friend. We were at an open marketplace and one of her old friends, she hadn't seen in years and they're hugging and laughing and talking and I'm little and I'm looking straight ahead and all I can see is this arm, this forearm is black. It's completely black. So, mm. you know, they, they say goodbye and they split. And so I said to uh, my aunt, his arm was black. And she said, you saw that? And I said, yes. And she says, you have the mana. <laughs> you have the mana of all of us. <laughs> mana means? Shakti. It's the same word in Sanskrit. But... Um, it's just, I, maybe you said it, I'm not sure, but uh, when I found, when I moved into the temple, when I became a devotee, when I met Srila Prabhupada, I could see colors again. I could see auras. It came back. Sure. Wow. 
back. But I, um, kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just, so, so you understood that you had, your relatives shared with you that you have that Shakti, you have that power, and you can see things that can help others. Yeah, and they, you know, my, my aunts are the only ones that I could talk to, because my mother was um, kind of afraid of them. She thought, uh, she was Christian, and um, she didn't, uh, she didn't have the, the strong faith and belief in the old Hawaiian religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, <laughs> I feel, so I think you said it first, but I, I'm going to repeat it that being in Krishna consciousness in knowing clearly what our goals are. Um, all of it is about service, service to others. And um, that's so in tune with my life and my previous lives, which I know <laughs> several of. And I'm writing a book about that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is too much. This is so cool. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just, okay. I, I have a question about, I have a question about the environment, but before I ask, I just want to say like, for me, this is giving me the opportunity to sort of step back. You know how we can, in the materially conditioned mindset, we have such a black and white, very narrow view of our life mm -hmm. about um, this one life. And um, the, just speaking for myself, sometimes failing to appreciate the, the enormity of my journey, the length of my journey and, and that um, the act, the service that I perform today, the, the love that I put into the service and the intention that I put into the service is what's important. It's not specifically what I'm doing that uh, is it important enough <laughs> is what I'm doing important enough. That's not what it is. It, it's, it's, um, am I being a servant right now? That's what's important. And I feel like hearing your story is just, it's opening up, see this sort of in more traditional or indigenous perspective of life as yes as you um, nailed it that's it the indigenous aspect of the original peoples <laughs> that, it, that that world is really just a, just trying you know our modern world has pushed that down and like not supporting except the ecologists, they are supporting certain things. Yes, it feels very freeing and very broadening. The story of your uncle's shape-shifting and having a completely different um, experience of life, even in a different species, and then being, being able to communicate that back to your family about where they are and what they're doing. And it just reminds me that... Um, our journey is really faceted 
you know, we can take different turns with Krishna. We can, um, you know, we have different chapters in our life. We have, and it's a lot more, um, the, and I have faith in hearing you that the more in tune with myself and with Krishna, I become the more aware I am of how, mystical life really is and how beautiful it really is that like you said it's we've we're brainwashed get in the car go to the grocery store you know and we can do all these things while also having a more holistic understanding of what what we're really doing here and who we really are who are we and what are we really doing (laughs) (laughs) that's a good one i guess um the question about being in your 30s, your 20s and 30s and trying to raise a family and trying to go to work and trying to be, you know, um, fit in your spiritual life at the same time, uh, that is something that all of us went through. We all experienced that it is difficult, it is hard, but in time, things get easier and they get better. And it's kind of like you have to go through those difficulties to develop tolerance, patience, and then you can look back and you can feel gratitude for, oh, I'm glad I had that experience because I, I know how I can help other people. Or I'm, I'm glad I learned this lesson from that situation. Thank you. I have some, that was um, to our listeners, that was Namamrita's question for Mother Mahavishnu Priya. He's, he's asking about how do we, you know, what, to, what do you say? What, what message do you say to 30 and 40 year olds who are caught up in our, in our lives um, and that our spiritual life may not feel as, um, as bold or as full as it as it did when we were younger and had more free time um so we may not so i so i'm hearing from your answer that we may not um the point is to go through the service (laughs) and and to be present in the service and when we look back we'll see oh We'll, we'll, we will not only have been present in doing our service nicely, but we'll look back and we'll see what Krishna was changing within us and what he was growing within us while we were doing it. And in that way, we'll be able to um, extend ourselves to a wider family. It's, it's amazing what Krishna wants us to learn. And it's amazing what he will situations he will create for us and um, they're all so specifically pointed towards things that we need to know and we need to be able to do for somebody else so that is that's a gift I mean even though it's difficult at the time and we feel so stressed and I can't do this you just have to I mean All I have to do is think of Srila Prabhupada's lotus feet. And I know I'm on the right track. No matter what chaos is going on, if I can think about 
he he wore these white. Uh, they looked like um, they, they're tennis shoes, but they weren't lace ups. They were um, slip ons. He would wear those a lot, um, and I can see those shoes in my mind, and I'm always trying to remember him and. Um, always asking myself, is he pleased? Is he pleased? Is he pleased with what I'm doing? It's, this is as good as I can get <laughs> right now. <laughs> but I'm trying and I see the goal and I know where it is. And I know there's a way to get there. We have the path. We've got the holy name. We've got his books. I was listening to somebody talk this morning and uh, they were saying that Srila Prabhupada's strategy was to bring Srimad Bhagavatam to the West and disseminate it widely because anybody who reads any little one sentence or two sentences from that book, Srimad Bhagavatam, it's so potent, it begins to change their life. So that's so beautiful. So beautiful to think about that. Is there so. Uh, Go ahead. We have hope. We have hope. <laughs> Thank you. I want to, there's one question I want to ask for you, ask of you, and um, and then maybe we can close with, um, with Srila Prabhupada. So you already did that, but I just have this lingering question that I, it's on my mind. Okay. And that is, how do you digest the environmental crisis that we face just generally um, on the planet, thinking about how you grew up and what, and how your ancestors grew up and what um, Srila Prabhupada said about your, your birthplace and, and, um, what's becoming, you know, we know the reality of Kali Yuga. We know, I, I, I have to talk to myself about this a lot that we know, <laughs> we know that it's going to keep, it's supposed to, we're having a, we're having the golden age of Lord Chaitanya for, for the next 10,000 years. And then, you know, Kali Yuga progresses and that is just the nature of the material world. We cannot stop it. We can do, we can perform our service, but we can't stop it. So there's, but at the same time, there's such a um, there's such a deep sadness, and I'm wondering how that what that experience is like for you, who've had a far more developed relationship with the environment than than most of us, especially as young children. Uh, let's see, <clears throat> what's happening to our planet is. Um, horrific and um, you know there's stories of Srila Prabhupada seeing a plant in the temple not being watered drying up and he'd, he'd say who has done such a thing I mean he his concern was so broad that even a plant got his attention could get his attention and he was everything he said and did, of course, was very instructive, but in a way, Krishna has his plan for this planet. Krishna has mm -hmm. 
the will to do whatever. So if we're, if we are just trying to see in a more spiritual vein that um, I'm just going to cooperate with uh, what I know to be true, be true to myself. Um, that even though these horrible things are happening, just like, let's take Hurricane Ian. All the devotees um, were not as affected. In the south of Florida, they were decimated. And we were all chanting the Shringa prayers, <laughs> and we were all praying that, you know, we could make it through this hurricane. And it, the hurricane swerved. It went across um, Florida below Orlando and it was downgraded to a tropical storm. And then when it went up north, we, we lost power because of high winds, but there was no raining, there was no flooding, the, our houses weren't torn apart. Uh, it wasn't, it was just like a tropical storm. And I think that that happens a lot for spiritual people, for and dedicated, um, it, we're not so affected by, we can hear it when we feel sad for others. We feel sad for those who still to this day don't have water or power down there. But um, we can pray. We can give them prayers. We, we can send them our prayers. But I, we can't get caught up in the material world. Everything is happening according to Krishna's arrangement. And we have mm. to accept, just like, you know, we were told that our uncle was a shark and we just had mm. to. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, Malati Prabhu saying, you want to be the best environmentalist? Then go back to Godhead and don't come back here. Get your feet, <laughs> your two feet off this planet forever. <laughs> <laughs> and stop polluting it and just go get out and bring whoever you can with you and just go you uh, environmentalist degree obtained <laughs> well one of my goals is that all of these people i talked about today um go back to home back to godhood that they they um even though they're on a higher level than i am because of what they can do and what they've done in the past. And uh, they, they have these extraordinary abilities. I'm still uh, trying to pursue uh, becoming pure enough to liberate them. I want, I want them all to be chanting Hare Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> and going back home, to, back to Godhead for good. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing the amazing stories of your family. Thank you. And, and in that, sharing your story, which is so just pure coolness. <laughs> and, and knowing that you're, that you're writing a book is very exciting. So I hope that you'll keep us updated on that. Okay, I will. Shield. Is Shield. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. Um, no, I think I'll save it for the next time. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Thank you so much, Mother Mahavishnu Priya. It's such an honor to speak with you today. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be in your association and to have this opportunity to talk to you. So um, on this level, you know, so you're so open and it's wonderful. Thank you so much. It's really a gift getting to know um, members of our community. Um, I, I know you'll, you'll agree, but every person that you, that you spend a little time with will surprise you. Absolutely. <laughs> and enrich, and we, we, yes. we enrich each other. Yes. Yes. Enrich our lives. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, Mother Mahavishnu Priya, Ki Jai. Shila Prabhupada, Ki Jai. Hari Wait.